But what we've said is, um, we've really just reiterated our mission here, as, as Cheryl already introduced, that our mission is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace, and that happens through the gospel of King Jesus, and we want to see it in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And we've been really focused on this phrase, um, deeply, I'm, I'm just not getting any clearer. I think we're good, so I'm not going to be distracted by anymore. This phrase, deeply transformed, how are, how are we formed? How are we transformed? How are we formed? Uh, one thing we've said is that, I say we, one thing I've said, nobody else has said anything. No, it's just <laughs> one thing that I've said is that formation is inevitable. We are formed. We're constantly being formed by this grid, the stories that we believe, the stories that we believe about ourselves, our identity. We're also formed by the people around us. It's so cool. I was just getting introduced to a lot of the, the I assume college, but I didn't ask. There's this web of relationships, and when you start living in relationships, those people rub off on you and you rub off on them. You see it in marriage, you see it with kids. The people around us form us, but then we also know that what we do does something to us. Our habits, our rhythms, our routines change us, and all of this is happening in an environment, and the environment that all of this is happening in is the physical world, we live in Memphis, and the digital world um, I didn't bring up my phone, but we all also live and inhabit this digital space of our, our phones, of the internet, of social media, and those things have a for formative effect. So if we're trying to be transformed, what would that look like? And here's what we said. We said in the place of story, we have to center our lives on the story of the gospel of King Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. Um, this week, we're going to explore how the Holy Spirit is actually involved in every piece of our formation. Did you know that there's no formation that happens apart from the Spirit? In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. By the Spirit, we, we breathe. The moment God takes His Spirit away from this world, the whole thing is no longer sustained and we go into nothingness. We are totally dependent on the Holy Spirit for our existence and our transformation into the image of Jesus. When you see transformation happening into the image of Christ, this is by the Spirit. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. So, I want to dive into the Holy Spirit today. I want to explore how the Holy Spirit helps us be transformed. But also know that there's a tension here when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a, a couple. One, we just see like the, how essential the Holy Spirit is. It's essential. John Stott, he's a, a commentator I really like. I've already quoted him a few times. He's a UK guy. He died about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Just really a great man of God and great thinker. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effectiveness without his power. But this is the problem, because as essential as the Holy Spirit is, there's also all of these warnings in our New Testaments about quenching the Spirit. The, the Spirit is essential. You can't, you can't do it without the, the Spirit, but you can stop the Spirit. It's kind of like when you're, you're driving in your car. Um, there was this, this famous kind of case of the brakes going out in a version of a Toyota car. Malcolm Gladwell did a podcast about this. And they said, well, the brakes went out. Nobody was stopping. And in the tests that they've actually seen, 
they said it actually doesn't even matter if your gas pedal gets stuck because your brakes always overpower your gas. Did you know your brakes are more powerful than your gas pedal? If you just floor it and you floor the brake, you're not going anywhere. Your, your engine's just gonna rev up and up and up. I think it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. He, he's, he is the fuel of our discipleship. But our brakes are more powerful in, in some way. I, we can quench it. Um, another way that Paul talks about it is his, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. One translation in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. This is a pretty cool metaphor. Paul, he talks about in his letters to Timothy, this minister. He says, you need to fan into flame the gift of God that was given on to you by the council of elders when they laid hands on you. So there, there's this metaphor of like dousing a fire or fanning it into flame. And what we see is that all of it depends on God, but we have this like, the governor that kind of can stop it, the brake system that can stop it. There's three ways I just want to say real quickly that may resonate with you that we actually end up quenching the spirit. Reed, do you mind just grab, grab that? It's not working very well today. Um, so I may like point at you, is that okay? Or hit <laughs> no pressure. All right, uh, go back to quench the spirit and theology. The first way is our theology. Some of us were raised in churches where it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. You know, you know it's like, do you want a relationship with, with God through the Holy Spirit? Yes, well then open up your Bible. And it's just totally boxed out and limited to that experience of the Spirit. Um, our, our church of origin, our family of origin, our thinking about God has a way of limiting our experience of God. Um, this, this is a major problem. The, the second issue is that sometimes sin can get in the way. Um, Paul actually talks about this Whenever he talks about quenching the spirit, he goes straight into a quenching the spirit, into a conversation. He says, don't despise prophecies. You should test them. But then he tells the people in Thessalonians, um, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Why? How is that connected to quenching the spirit? Um, I've, I've walked with a lot of people who have doubts about God, who are deconstructing their faith. And most of the people, most of the people that have doubts of God also have secret sin. In his letter of Ephesians, don't grieve the spirit. Paul, what would that look like? He says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and malice be put away from you. He's, you your secret anger, the slander, the gossip, the sexual sin, the, the secret sin, the pornography. These things have a way of blocking out the spiritual work in our life. Don't grieve the spirit. The holiness of the spirit wants to transform us into holiness. And so unholiness has a way of blocking out his work. Third way. We, we see it in our theology, in our thinking, our belief. We see it in our secret sin. But I think we also see it in our distraction. The, we live in a world it's non-stop, it's constant. We multitask at multitasking. We're like watching Netflix and scrolling Instagram at the same time. How are we supposed to hear the still small voice? Be still and know that I am God. Be still. I've got a lot to do today. <laughs> still, even when I'm still, you know, you get your headphones in, there's just so much noise and distraction. 
life of the Spirit is really different. We, we see the life of Jesus, and he's like walking for 30 miles through the desert. It's probably pretty quiet. You, you and I are not doing that, even when we're outside, kind of under the, the glory of God. We just find ways of filling our, our minds. These things make life with the Spirit difficult. Discipleship is going to have to transform every one of these pieces. All right. With, with those tensions kind of in view, let's dive in to our text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to just look at 1 through 21. 1 through 21. But like I said, if you, if you got one of our Bibles, it's on page 936. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. You know what the day of Pentecost is? Have you ever celebrated? Raise, raise your hand if you celebrated Pentecost. Oh, okay, we need to fix that. <laughs> no, nobody has celebrated Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a Greek word that just means 50th. And it's a, it's a day that commemorates the 50th day after Passover. And so this is one of those hyperlinks. You know, when you, you get the link and the email and you click it and you go to a different story or a different article, that's what we're doing here. The day of Pentecost, it's saying, remember Passover. Remember Israel coming out of Egypt. Remember what happened when they passed through the Red Sea. Don't remember what happened when they passed through the Red Sea? They're guided in what's in the, what's in the sky. There's this great cloud. And there's this great fire. And it's, it's giving them directions. The cloud and the fire, it's, it's guiding God's people. And they commemorated this with this great festival called Pentecost. But it's also a harvest festival. This is like springtime. Uh, it's, it's early summer. And so at Pentecost, they call it sometimes the, the harvest or the feast of first fruits. Uh, anybody here garden? Uh, the, the first fruits are the things that come in first. That makes sense, right? And so Pentecost is this initial early harvest that's pointing to a bigger harvest that's coming later. Oh, look, we already have, like, these strawberries on the vine. Imagine what's going to come later. Let's give this back to God, trusting that he's good for the rest of it, too. You see how all of this is shaping Acts chapter 2. You get cloud and wind and fire. You get an initial harvest that's really amazing, that's pointing to what's coming to the ends of the earth. You, the day of Pentecost here is actually a pretty important backdrop for what's happening. But it's another backdrop. It's not just Passover, it's not just harvest. It's also that it commemorates the giving of the law. In Jewish tradition, they said it took about 50 days to leave Egypt, to get through the Red Sea, to go through the wilderness, and to finally end up at the mountain called Sinai. And if you know what happened at the mountain called Sinai, is that there's this cloud that settles on the mountain. And Moses actually goes up into it, and there's this booming, thunderous noise that's terrifying to the people around. And then there's this fire and lightning. It's, it's, this, it's a scene. Moses goes up into the mountain, and he comes down with the law. And here in Acts 2, all of those kind of hyperlinks and cues are the background music is the, is the Exodus story. We should be hearing the tunes of going up into a cloud. Well, that's Acts chapter 1, where Jesus just ascended. We should be thinking of, of fire and sounds. Well, that's Acts chapter 2 in this upper room. And we should be thinking of someone who's going to come down and give us a law, but in this case, instead of a covenant of law, it comes down with the Spirit. So, 
when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Do you see those two words, wind and fire? Wind and fire are just Old Testament themes for the presence of God. Just about every time God shows up in the Old Testament, it's wind or fire. Whenever he shows up to the first the first time, Abraham meets him and he passes through, it's in, it's in fire. Do you remember when Moses is looking at the burning bush, it's, it's fire. And whenever they're, they're guided through the wilderness, they're, they're following the fire. Whenever they see God on Mount Sinai, it's wind and it's fire. The, the Lord comes down and he dwells in the temple. How does it look? It's, it's wind and fire over and over. That still small voice is even that voice in the wind. The wind and fire, wind and fire is the presence of God. And here, the wind and fire shows up in an oikos. You see the word house? They're in a house. A couple of things about the house. And not just because we're oikos church. It's, I, I'm going to point I've already told you, I'm going to point it out every time. But it's not just because we're oikos church. Uh, Luke is playing uh, on this word a lot in Acts chapters 1 through 7. Here they are in a house, he says, in an oikos. It's, it's a weird way to call where I think they actually are. In, in just a little bit, everybody's going to kind of crowd in here. How many people end up being baptized on this day from this place? Do you remember? 3,000. Anybody have a house that can host 3,000 people? No. But there is one house in Jerusalem that can. And it has what the Jews call oikos. And all around it, there are meeting rooms in the temple. Meeting rooms in the temple. I, would, I look back on this like 18th century um, Bible scholar that I really like named J.W. McGarr. And he says, yeah, we can be pretty sure that these oikos that he's talking about here are part of the temple complex. This is a pretty widely held view, not just from McGarvey, but a lot of people. But the place isn't what's important because of how the Spirit comes on the people. You see, everybody at this time, you, you go to the temple and you don't see the fire in the cloud anymore. The fire in the cloud, they left a long time ago whenever the Babylonians came in and they destroyed this place. This, this house of God has... It's not like it used to be. God's not here anymore. They've been waiting. When the Messiah comes, the prophet said, when the Messiah comes, then this, the, the wind and the fire are going to come back. And it's going to fill this place again. And they were so close to being right because it doesn't come and fill the place. It comes and fills the people. The people become the oikos. That's the language. That's the language of Stephen. He says, you think you can build an oikos with your hands as if God dwelt in houses made by men? This oikos, the, the significance isn't the place. It's not the house. It's the people. Keep going, read. And so they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. They, they thought that there was going to be the sacred place at the temple. But instead, what they discover is that each of them becomes a sacred place where the spirit comes and dwells in them. Do You see, it, it's a tongue of fire, play on words. The, the tongue and the language, if you're about to be speaking the same word. 
But the significance is that each of them are now inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Keep going. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so what we see here is that uh, just as Jesus entered his public ministry in, in the Gospel of Luke, where it says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, it says that he was led by the Spirit, and it says he went out in the, in the power and the anointing of the Spirit, just like Jesus now so his people. Now they are filled and anointed and equipped and empowered. And he says, this, this promise, this gift, he's going to say just a little bit, is for you, and it's for your children, and it's also for all those who are far off. So they're, they're filled with the Spirit. Two more, three. Go ahead and go through that one. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Daryl Brewer did our giving liturgy today. And he says, when you ask somebody from Mississippi to read, you have to expect to go a little slower. I think that's kind of what's in view here with the Galileans. Um, you did a great job, Daryl. Um, and so does Peter. Um, God, God is not held back by where we come from or by how we talk. God. Thank the Lord, right? These, these two words that are highlighted are bewilderment and amazed. You see the confusion? People are, in some translations use that word confusion. I think that's a really good one. Because here's another hyperlink. There's, there's a story in the Old Testament. It's at the very beginning. There's this long chapter that goes through all these nations that they call the Table of Nations. Um, Austin, I'll have you read that one another time. Okay. Um, the table of it is just nation after nation after nation after actually seventy nations, and a lot of those are shown up here. And it says that they they want one voice and they want one language, and they start building a tower, and they're going to make a name for themselves. You know what the Lord does? It says that He He confuses their language, and then He disperses them. It's, it's the Tower of Babel. Um, here is the reverse of the curse of Babel. Instead of dispersing, he's unifying. Instead of confusing language, now he uses language to unite by his spirit. What happens at Pentecost is the, the almost the, the true fulfillment of what was happening at Babel. And so they, they were bewildered and amazed, and it's this cue that, oh, God's doing a new thing. And the thing he is doing is so confusing to people because they've come to expect something different. And so they heard people talking in their own tongues. Um, keep going. Go ahead and let's go to these, these countries. There are Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. We don't know these places. I, I get it. Some of you are like geography nerds. You may. He's going from east to west across the empire. And then he throws in a couple of the end. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and and as uh, Austin said, Arabs. Um, if you're if you're an Arab, you're probably from Arab, Alabama. Um, one of my, my friends landed. Uh, I just love that I can talk to an Arab. And I'll stop with that. Okay. Uh, he says we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. You see the nature of this miracle. It, it seems to be both speaking and hearing that they are speaking in another language. That, that's what this word tongue means. It's, it, it means your language. 
These people hadn't studied these other languages. These are Galileans. The people are up there watching these guys talk to this every nation kind of crowd. And they're like, aren't these guys from Galilee? But some, it says, keep going to read. It says, some were amazed and perplexed, and they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, and they said, they have had too much wine. Let's go to Peter's comments. Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd. And he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I love Peter's argument here, don't you? It's like, come find us later in the day? I, I can't say it. But there seems to be an early morning fast that's associated with the Feast of Pentecost. And so it just doesn't make sense, he says. But there's actually, I think, an important theological point here about what's happening by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. So even when people are speaking in other tongues and languages, they're quite in control. They're, they're in their own heads, right? But they're still with the fruit of the Spirit. They're not drunk. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a different way of living for us. We don't, we don't try to get intoxicated in order to get in touch with who God is. God wants a clear mind, and then he wants to give us freedom through that. All right, keep going, read. And he says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, this is one of those really obvious hyperlinks, right? And so he, he's tapping into this prophetic hope that Ezekiel or Isaiah and Joel, they all promise that one day the Spirit's going to come. When God returns and his king is here, his Messiah comes, he's going to pour out his Spirit. That's the language they use. He's going to pour it out. It's like this rain shower, but then it reservoirs up and it, it stays put. Um, but what's interesting is that he says, no, keep going, read. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What's interesting is that he says, I'm quoting Joel, but then he changes the quotation immediately. That, that, that phrase, in the last days, that's not what Joel said. Joel says, in afterward. Here, he says, in the last days at the risk of losing uh, losing you. I think this is significant. He, he's, he's intentionally saying this characterizes the whole age that we're in. This isn't just something that happened afterward. This is something that now characterizes the age of living under the, the king, under the Messiah. Again, stop. He says, it's the unanimous conviction of the New Testament authors that Jesus inaugurated the last days of the Messianic age. We're in the last days still today. And that the final proof of this was the outpouring of the Spirit. He says, we've got to be careful not to requote Joel's prophecy as if we're awaiting its fulfillment. We're living in the fulfillment of what Joel is about to say. The whole Messianic era, which stretches between the two comings of Christ, from his, his inauguration of the kingdom until his final come, his final coming. That's the age of the Spirit. That's the age that we live in. This is the, the age of the church. So what he's about to say characterizes the whole age. I think he's intentional about that. And the whole age is to live in the pouring out of the Spirit. One more read. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, 
and they will prophesy. You see how he's just going through a, a catalog of like our identity markers? Are there spiritual conditions that keep us from experiencing God? Yes. Are there social conditions? No. This is gender. Sons and daughters, men and women. Gender will not keep you from experiencing the Holy Spirit. Age. He says young. He says old. Age is not going to be a barrier. And then he says even class. My servants. Even my servants. Not just my kings. My servants will experience. It, it's really a beautiful hope of the unity of the Spirit. That's, that's one way the New Testament talks about it. The unity of the Spirit isn't because we're similar to one another, but because we have the one Spirit in us. It is the Spirit's work of unifying people who come from different places, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ages, different genders, different classes. The, the unity of the Spirit transcends these racial and national and linguistic barriers so that all nations are brought together into one family, one, one oikos in this case. But what are they brought together for? All right, next word. He says they will prophesy, they will have dreams, they will have visions. And then, so you see these three, prophesy, visions, dreams, they seem to all be kind of in parallel. Commentators, they generally think that these are all one thing. <laughs> like it's the work of the Spirit in, in this way. And the short form of this is the word prophesy. They will prophesy. And then he talks about this great and glorious day of the Lord. Let's look at verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Do you see that most of these things happened when Jesus was crucified? There are these little previews of, of the world getting turned upside down in darkness and but it's all anticipating the, the big return of the king that's, that's coming. He says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Joel's prophecy is about salvation. It's about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to give us salvation, to give us sanctification, and yes, to give us a form of service. One cool thing here, uh, the name of the Lord. If you keep reading in Acts 2, You'll get to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and he says that everybody, they're, you know, they're cut to the heart. They're, they're really convicted. What do we do? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, Joel's prophecy is about Yahweh. Yahweh is going to come, and Yahweh is going to save. But Peter and the apostles, and Luke, our author here, are saying that Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh. You want to be saved by God? Here he is. He's in the person of Jesus. All right, keep going, Reed. All right, so, so let's make a couple of conclusions and then figure out, all right, what do we do with this? The Spirit comes down, and he, this promise is for us and for our children, for all who are far off. The Spirit is for the whole age. It's, it's for men and women. It's for young and old. It's, it's for high class and low class. It's for servants. All right, what do we do with this? Um, I, I think Oikos is a pretty good place to start. Let's just make some big observations about what he's claiming. He's claiming 
that God's house is no longer a temple or a place or a building. God's house is now a people. God dwells in his people. And the word for this in the New Testament frequently is oikos. You are fellow citizens with God's people, and you are members of God's oikos, Paul says. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And the whole building is being joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you two are being built to become a holy dwelling, an oikos, in which God lives by the Spirit. God lives in if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are pledging allegiance to the King, if you have experienced this, this faith and repentance and baptism, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is God is in you. And so the, the early church was not a building, it's not a facility, it's a people on the move. It, in the Old Testament, when the cloud settles on the tabernacle, it means stay. But when the fire shows up, it means go. And the fire shows up in Pentecost, and it sends out God's people, and the Spirit moves his people out into the mission of God. All right. Uh, how, what does he do? You may be wondering, are you saying we should expect to speak in tongues? Are you saying that we should expect spiritual gifts? If you just keep reading in Acts, I think it gives a picture of what to expect in the church age, in the age of the Spirit. You should expect things like Acts 2 or 4 where he gave them the words to say, and they were able to speak boldly because of their, their prayers for the Spirit. It shows that he guided them to new places, like in Acts 8. He guides them to new people, like the visions of Cornelius in Acts 10. He sent them on missions where he, he calls out missionaries, and they go plant churches in, in nearby cities. He guides them to decisions, like the Jerusalem Council. He closes doors. He opens doors. The Spirit is at work behind the scenes. He appoints leaders like elders. He, he gives insights. He gives prophecies. The Spirit is at work in, in a, just all the ways. And so at Oikos, we seek to be a Spirit-led movement, a, a people who are surrendered and seeking the guidance of the Spirit who will continue to open up doors and to work in our hearts and to send people out and to raise people up. But we recognize that Oikos Church is not a place. We are people on the move, empowered by the Spirit. Let me give you a practical tool to, to help with that. Um, it's the hearing and doing tool. What would it look like to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit? All right, go to the first passage. There's this pair of words, hearing and doing, that Jesus and his brother James both talk about. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock but the one who only hears and doesn't also put these into practice, he says he's just a fool. He, his house is going to go splat, right? All right, James. James one twenty two. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's this pair that have to go together when it, we talk about what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. It's hearing and doing. And I want to share a tool that I got from... Uh, some really great people that, that trained me for church planting called the Hearing and Doing Circle. Can I just walk through what this means? And if you've got a bulletin, this would really be worth just kind of diagramming out on the back. We're going to start at the top of this. You see it's a circle. A circle is a cycle. It just keeps going. And it begins with a God moment. You know what I mean by God moment? Some moment 
as Cheryl described, where God just gets your attention. He gets your attention. God is at work. He's doing something. You hear his voice. You, you feel his work. You see an open door. There's so many different kinds of God moments. Uh, I've heard somebody describe these as breakthrough moments, where it's like all of a sudden I've experienced God in a different way. And I think normally this has to do with especially past trauma and forgiveness. You can have huge breakthrough moments when you deal with your stuff in the past. But generally, God moments are in these ongoing day after day um, process of moments. It's, it's a little slower. They're ordinary moments over time where the crucible of life forms us in big ways. That's a God moment where God gets your attention. Let me illustrate. Uh, this week, um, Kelsey was spending time in prayer for someone that she loved. Their child was very sick, about two weeks old, very sick. She was praying for this child, for the parents, and she felt a burden in her heart to go to them. Uh, they live a couple hundred miles away, so that wasn't the most convenient thing. She felt a burden in her heart to go to them, and she came to me, and basically she didn't use the word God moment, but for us, this is just a, a pretty regular thing that we do. God got my attention. I need to now start this hearing and doing circle. Sometimes we actually, uh, Reed and I have used hearing and doing circle as a verb. We need to hearing and doing circle this thing. <laughs> so it's, it's a way of processing together what God might be doing in our lives because of some, some feeling he's brought, some thought that he's brought, or some people that he's brought. Sometimes it's less formal. It's just a conversation. So when you experience a God moment, um, actually, there are so many kinds of God moments. Um, I hope that you're developing a rhythm of listening to scripture every day. And if you have your Bible open and you are prayerful, seeking the voice of the Lord, you will experience God moments every day. Every day you walk out and say, what do I do with this text? What do I do with this word from the Lord? Scripture is an amazing place to experience God moments. You can walk outside in creation. creation. You can experience God moments. Angels, prophets, in, throughout scripture, God's using those to encounter people with God moments. Dreams and visions and miracles. Guys, I can't tell you how many serpents were written in my dreams. And it's like, then I wake up, I write them down, and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm going to share this now. <laughs> uh, sometimes God speaks in audible voices. Sometimes it's in an inner voice. You remember Romans chapter 8? He says, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness within our spirit. We are God's children. We're beloved. It's, it's an inner voice. Sometimes it's circumstances. Sometimes it's situations. It's open doors. It's closed doors. You think you have an opportunity, and then somebody slams it shut. That's a God moment. What do we do with this? Um, it's a, perhaps a miracle, just as much as all the rest. He even works through committees. In, in Acts chapter 15, there, there's church groups and councils that God is at work through. Those are God moments. Have you had a God moment recently? The God moment then starts this hearing and doing circle. The first step in the hearing and doing circle is to reflect. Is to start just asking some questions. And I think it's a really important to start by yourself. In solitude and prayer, seek to clarify what happened, what got my attention, and then to articulate um, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. Um, what stood out? Why did this feel weighty? What should I do? To go ahead and start in journaling helps you. 
And then once you reflect on your own, then invite other people into this process. Step two. Step two is discuss. And so if it was solitude in prayer, now it's community in prayer. In community, we discern and we test and we clarify what God might be doing with this situation or this invitation. Is this from the Lord? What's he inviting me into? Help me test this. And then after that, you have to move from hearing into doing. You have to. That's the only way to be led by the Spirit. It's the only way. Otherwise, he says, we just are fools or we're deceiving ourselves if we don't move into obedience. And so what would it look like? I think it looks like, number three, planning. Where we discover what to do next and we plan to move. This is where you start asking the very specific questions of who and the what and the how and the when and the where. Kelsey felt a burden to drive to Nashville. Okay, well, we've got to figure out childcare because I'm, I'm working. That's a long way away. Who's going to get you there? What are we going to do? It, it actually takes real life you know, logistics to figure out how to obey what God is doing in our hearts. In big and small ways. You know, the, the burden to plant a church was a little more disruptive than the burden to drive to Nashville to pray. Same process. Um, number four. Once we plan, then we step out in faith and in prayer. If you notice, I've said prayer on every one of these. You step up in faith and in prayer, and you invite your community to be a part of your accountability. You've already included friends and advisors and mentors in step two and step three. You need to continue including them in step four so that they can check in. But here, here's one of the beautiful things about the hearing and doing circle, is that it's a circle. It's this, right? Got it? It's a circle, which means where are you, after you obey, where are you now? You're all the way back at a God moment. <laughs> now it's like, okay, now what do I do? And then to continue be, being guided by hearing and doing, by hearing and doing, by listening and discernment and obedience. This is a pretty simple tool that will just, I think, give some structure to your conversations about what God might be doing in your life. Um, all right, one word of caution. Read, let's go to test the spirits. Go ahead and put the first one up there. When we seek the Spirit, I think it's really important when we talk about hearing and doing to do so with really healthy discernment. The Apostle John, he says it like this. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Paul says you should weigh carefully what you hear and what is said. He says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test everything. And hold on to the good. So our, our, our testing starts with Scripture. Is this something that, that is in alignment with what God is saying in Scripture? Scripture is our, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. You remember the Bereans? It says that they received the word with all eagerness and then examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. May we have that posture. Number two. You first, you test it with scripture, and then you test it in community. This is really that, that discuss phase. Uh, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel, the book of Proverbs tells us. To discern in community with other spiritual people is really helpful. Don't do this on your own. Christianity is not a solo sport. Listening to the voice of God is, is designed for life in community. 
If you're making life-altering decisions on your own, I would plead with you, find spirit-filled people and listen. Test it. Challenge it. Don't just validate that inner voice. Third, check the fruit. My kids uh, eat a lot of apples. I should say they eat a lot of half of an apple. And then they leave the rest of the apples. Yesterday I sat on one like, underneath a pillow in our couch. I was like, how is this here? <laughs> and I love apples. But if you pick up something and it's soft and brown and it's kind of rotten, you don't want to eat that. You gotta check its fruit. And if, and if we're testing, according to scripture and according to the community, we should expect to see the fruit of the spirit come out of something. If something leads to hatred and anger and death, if it leads to the opposite of forgiveness and freedom, it's probably not the spirit's work. There are other spirits at work in this world and the Holy Spirit will lead us to his fruit. Check the fruit. Number four, last one, hold it in humility. Even when we discern in community in accordance with scriptures, I, I think we should still hold it in humility. And my favorite language for this comes from the Apostle Paul in his letter to Philemon. Paul says, I think God is at work in the situation. So perhaps. You see how open-handed the word perhaps is? Perhaps. Perhaps God might be doing something. Perhaps the Lord has opened this door. Perhaps he's put this on my heart. You see, it's, it's a humility that says, I don't presume to know the mind of the Lord. The wind blows where it wishes. Perhaps. Hold it in humility. Uh, in his book called Prayer, Tim Keller, he tells a story of George Whitfield. Um, he's a big, famous, kind of popular preacher from a couple of centuries ago. And George has a son, um, a, a baby boy. And he has this, this sense in his heart that he says is from God that this boy is going to be destined to be a magnificent preacher of the word. His mother's name is Elizabeth. He says he's going to be like John the Baptist. He's going to be like John the Baptist. And so they named this baby John. And then he goes up into the pulpit on Sunday. And he's talking about his new baby boy, John. And he tells the whole church about how wonderful a preacher John is going to be. Sadly, his son, John, died at just four months old. And so Whitfield, he was grieved, of course. But he was also humble. And so he went and he wrote this penitent prayer of caution about speaking so boldly for the Lord. So Keller concludes with this observation. The lesson here is that God never guides our thoughts. It is not that God never guides our thoughts or prompts us to choose wise courses of action. But apart from reading it in scripture, we just can't have that level of certainty. We need to hold it in humility. All right, let me close with this. You can put up the graces. I'm not going to talk about them today. Um, we're going to explore these much more in our groups and in our next series, Lord willing. But can you just imagine what it might be like in your life to just be fully surrendered to what the Spirit's doing? We will not change without the Spirit's work, not change into the image of Jesus. But can you imagine what it would be like if we sought the Spirit and sought to be changed by? If we earnestly desired the Spirit and His gifts, if, if we, we just passionately pursued Him with obedience, <laughs> theologically, what might happen? It might break some of our categories of the ways that we boxed out the Holy Spirit of God. But I think the wind blows where it wishes. 
we talked about theology, how it can hold us back. We also talked about sin, how it can hold us back. Can you imagine what it might do in your heart for the Holy Spirit to get a hold of your secret sin? That root of bitterness, or that, that root of whatever, that thing that has a hold on you, that's keeping you from experiencing the, the fullness of the presence of God. What if he was able to help you find the healing underneath it? And then to find the forgiveness for it? And then to live in the freedom from it? How might your life, your, your life with God, your experience of God in prayer, the, the abandon with God in, in worship, how might that be different because of how the Spirit could deal with your sin? But also, what might happen if we let the Spirit start dealing with our life of distraction, our, our phone worlds, our, our nonstop? What if we were to carve out space in our calendars for something like the graces? On, on a daily rhythm, on a weekly communal rhythm, where we're serving up and in and out. What might the Spirit be doing in our lives? It seems like every great event in Scripture, it's, it's, I'm sure you can find some exceptions, but it seems to me like every great event in Scripture begins with a quiet word from the Lord, where someone discerns that the Lord is leading them into something, calling them into deeper service, calling them into deeper faithfulness, and for me and my house, we are using this season right now, as we walk through this welcome homework, but we are using this season right now to carve out new rhythms of discipleship together. Because I'm convinced of this for my own sake, and perhaps for you as well. That if I can seek the Spirit in solitude, my own soul will be refreshed and given life. And then if I can include my children and my wife in that, level of discipleship and seeking the Spirit, then it can have a generational impact. A generational impact where my kids will grow up in a home where they're used to seeking the Spirit. They're downstairs doing that today. Where they have rhythms of seeking the Word of the Lord and Scripture. Where they have these disciplines that are honed for worship and celebration and thankfulness and, and listening to the Lord. What might that do to raise my son to be a man and my daughters to be women who do that? What might it be for you? I think it'll change me. I think it'll change my family. And I also think it'll change Oikos Church. The strength and the movement of Oikos Church is proportional to our discipleship to Jesus. To the power of the Spirit. To the, the level that we take off the, our foot on the brake. And we let him fuel us and move us into mission. So that we can be sent out. Some of you here I know have are just gifted in business. Like, I mean, some, I don't, I'm not going to name anybody. I've already made eye contact. No <laughs> I know you're gifted. But have you, have you allowed God to speak into how you're using those gifts? What if it's not just profit that he wants? What if it's transformation in the city that he wants? Some of you are seeking, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends, and, and you're hoping to be married one day. What would it look like to surrender this part of your life? How might this turn you into a man or a woman of God? Because I, I think the Spirit wants to change our lives, to transform us in the image of Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm just pleading, would you, would you lean in, take your foot off the brake, and adopt these rhythms of discipleship to Him? Um, I think it would make all the difference. Would you stand? I want to offer a prayer from 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll be done. 
Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold unto the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And then Paul's prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.